You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have a great guest today, uh, Dinesh Talker. Um, I, I heard about him uh, after listening to an interview on Dr. Peter Atiyah's podcast with a journalist named Catherine Eban. And Dinesh Talker figured prominently in her story about generic drugs and how a lot of them are made overseas in India and other places. And they're not made, uh, to put it lightly, up to snuff, up to spec. And the FDA, you know, is supposed to weigh in and protect consumers, but there's a whole murky mess, uh, it, it seems, with uh, generic drugs. And Congress in the United States pressures uh, to get generic drugs that are affordable. And just the whole, the whole me- medical system seems to be a big old mess. And Dinesh was caught up in it. So, Dinesh, thanks for coming. Um, if you don't mind, can you give just a very abbreviated version of the story? You know, how did you first encounter troubles with generic drugs and how did it go from there? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Richard, for having me on, on, on the podcast. Um, so this is, I think, a story has been told many times over now, and especially with the book. But uh, basically, um, I had an opportunity to go to work for a very large generic drug company that's based in India after having worked in the U.S. Um, in the large pharma for almost a decade. And when I got there um, through serendipity, I found out that a lot of what they were doing um, in terms of data that was submitted to the U.S. FDA to secure marketing approvals for their products in the U.S. market was essentially made up. Um, they they hadn't followed the, the process and the practice of actually testing, you know, the, the the drugs that they were making. And in many cases, they were fraudulently making up data. Um, you know, and so when I found that out, um, obviously, you know, I tried to uh, alert the management in the company uh, to try and, in the hope that they would actually try and fix it. Unfortunately, you know, that just didn't uh, go the way that me and my manager at that point in time wanted, and both of us essentially quit. And then I kind of worked with the US FDA for, you know, almost eight years before in the company pled guilty to seven counts of criminal felony and paid half a billion dollars in fines. And this was back in 2013. But um, more importantly, what, you know, what this did 
while you know the Office of Criminal Investigations of the USFDA was investigating this case, it opened up the USFDA to this completely different way of thinking about the kind of fraudulent activity that actually goes on in overseas manufacturing. And you know, it, it essentially came under this large umbrella called data integrity. Um, so you know, if you think about it, the way that the, the USFDA, which is the health regulator for our country here, assures that our drug supply is safe is largely based on paper inspection. So the, the way the process works is that, you know, pharmaceutical companies that want to sell a product, you know, whether it's a drug or a device, to patients in the U.S., they basically have to secure an approval from the regulator, which is the U.S. FDA, saying that, right. you know, their product essentially has a better risk, uh, a better benefit compared to the risk that it offers, right? Any chemical or biological entity that you put in your body has a risk associated with it. And what the FDA does is basically say that the, the risk that, that this particular uh, chemical entity has, uh, it's smaller than the benefit it actually provides, right? So that's the evaluation that the US FDA does. And the, the vast majority of the evaluation is actually done by review of paper. Um, it, it's about information that the companies provide to the US FDA in terms of how they you know, manufacture the product. What kind of testing do they do in order to make sure that the drug actually works? Right. And what is the safety profile for this? Right? So, I mean, just to give you a simple example, you know, if you have a headache um, and, you know, there's a medicine for that headache, you, you, you would not, you know, sort of want that medicine to give you, for example, extreme rashes, right, or, or your skin becoming brittle. But compared to that, you know, if you're undergoing chemotherapy, if you, you know, for, for cancer treatment, and, you know, one of the side effects of chemotherapy is that your hair essentially thins out. Now, you don't want your hair to fall out when you're taking medicine for, for headaches, right? So uh, clearly right. The, the, the risk there is, you know, not acceptable for the kind of benefit that the drug offers to you alleviating your headache. But the risk of hair falling out may be acceptable if you're, you know, undergoing chemotherapy and essentially taking radiation, right? So it's a question of balancing the risk versus the benefit of what this particular drug offers you. And a vast majority of this is done through documentation. Even when the inspectors that the FDA has go out there and make inspections, a lot of this is based upon a review of what the company says that it is doing in order to produce a product. And by and large, the system worked very well when majority of our drug supply was manufactured within the United States because Inspectors would just kind of show up unannounced and basically say, look, you know, we want to inspect your facility. We want to see how you do all of the processes that you think that, that you've told us that you would do. Well, right. that's not that easy to do when, you know, a facility is located halfway across the world, right? First of all, you need visas to go to that country. Second of all, you don't know the language. You don't know the lay of the land. And many a times, you know, these companies essentially get way, you know, ahead notice, like six to eight weeks of notice, basically saying that there's going to be an inspection scheduled. So you yeah, know, they would crazy. just clean up their act. Yeah. So that was what was happening. And you know, this case basically opened up a Pandora's box to the USFDA basically saying <clears throat> this is a real problem. And mm -hmm. so while you know this case was essentially kind of you know prosecuted, the Congress essentially gave the USFDA authority to conduct similar inspection to what it did internally within the United States. Um, you know, for the facilities located, you know, in India and China, which basically supply the vast majority of our drug supply. Um, so if you think about, you know, volume of prescriptions that are actually filled in the country, 
I mean, I know that, you know, vast majority of our conversation is always focused on price, and rightfully so, right? Because some of these medicines are extremely expensive. But if you right, think yeah. in terms of just the volume of, of, you know, medicines that we consume, 80% of, of the, the prescriptions that are filled in the country essentially is manufactured outside the country. So, well, you know, you know what um, really bothered me is that in the book, it said that hundreds of thousands of people would go to their doctors in the U.S., for instance, and say, doctor, I don't feel well, you know, where this medicine's not working. And the doctor would say, yeah. well, they're all the same and it must be in your head. Yeah. And that's terrible. Yeah. You know, if I if I have to yeah. take, I don't know, 100 milligrams of X for yeah. my heart and right. Because I'm getting generics, one month I'm getting the equivalent of zero milligrams, and the next yeah. month I get the equivalent of a thousand milligrams. It yeah. could kill me. It certainly is of not going to treat me properly, but that's that's horrible. It is, but the thing is, you have to you think about this, right? So for a very long period of time, um, our regulator, the USFD, has done such a good job of convincing all of us that a genetic equivalent, you know, that must be approved, it's supposed to work exactly, you know, and identically to a branded drug, right? So this is what the USFD has already told us. Um, you know, it, it, it keeps repeating this. You know, if you look at, you know, when Dr. Gottlieb was the commissioner of the USFD a couple of years ago, they actually ran a very big campaign um, trying to demonstrate equivalence, therapeutic equivalence between uh, branded drugs and then generic drugs. And, you know, this is something that the USFD does because, you know, in their opinion, you know, once they give approval to a particular drug, it is supposed to work in the way that the, the original innovative drug is supposed to work. But in reality, that's not the case. I mean, if you go back to their USFDA's own, you know, data about recalls, thankfully, they publish all this information on their, on their, um, on their dashboard, right? And if you look at the number of recalls that have um, essentially, you know, been piling up over the last couple of years, you have to ask yourself, well, why are these things being recalled, right? Um, yes, statistically, you will have some issues, right? Even your car may have recall because an airbag is not functioning properly or something's wrong with, you know, your brakes or whatever. But statistically, if you think the number of recalls that we're seeing, and, you know, just in sort of last year, I can tell you about this so this, this uh, medicine that is used in the cardiovascular area. It's called Valsartan. You know, we've been taking with the millions of people who take this medicine, um, and we only recently found out that this, med, you know, there are trace amounts of rocket fuel in this medicine, in the way that it's manufactured, you know, in India based on material that they source from China. It's crazy. Um, and that, and that to happen because a small pharmacy based in Connecticut started testing, you know, their their, their product because USFDA does not test anything that comes into the country. We only look at a piece of paper and basically say, well. The manufacturer which is doing this is basically, you know, saying it's okay. So we will basically yeah. accept that they'll work for it. Well, uh, I have a question here that's, that's, you know, it's funny. When I was reading the book and listening to the interview, I thought they, they, these companies are going to so much effort to obfuscate and to get away with it. Like, why don't they just do it right? Is it that much more costly and effort to, like, try to do it right? <laughs> why don't they do that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good question. And, and I think that that's a question that needs to be kind of, you know, we need to peel the onion a little bit to answer this, right? Because vast majority of conversation when it comes to prescription medicines, you know, focus on price. We always talk about how expensive the EpiPen is or the most, you know, recent sort of you know, medicine that is a bit proof for um, HCV or HPV. I mean, there are thousands of dollars, right? 
But if you think about, you know, for example, you know, the normal medicine that you take, um, you know, maintenance medication, whether it's for your diabetes or for your heart condition, a typical $30, a 30-day prescription is filled, you know, at a copy of what, $10, $15, right? So, you know, if you think about it, you know, the per unit cost of that, it's more than, it's less than what you would actually pay for a piece of fruit. You go to your local, you know, sort of grocery store and buy an apple, you know, that right. you in Washington, you know, how much do you normally pay? You pay about 75 cents to a dollar, right? But if you think about this pill that you're taking twice a day to maintain your blood pressure and you're paying $12 to maybe $20 copay for 60 pills, how much is that, right? So, you know, but the market... Isn't, is isn't there a middle thing. ground? Isn't there a middle... Like if, if a generic is... You know, I don't know, uh, ten cents a pill, and the brand version is ten dollars a pill. Isn't there a middle ground, though? There ought to be, right? But the, unfortunately, I think this 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 marketplace has become very lopsided. Although we spend so much time discussing, you know, the price of of branded drugs, which rightfully are extremely expensive, we really don't pay, pay too much attention to, you know, the the fact that there is actually there should be a lower threshold you know, for manufacturing and, you know, to certain quality specifications of the generic drugs, right? Mm. The trouble, you know, it's been, and this has been written, you know, over and over many, many times is that there are middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers, the Express Scripts, the Medcos, and these guys essentially negotiate the lowest possible um, pricing for these manufacturers and still make, you know, hands of money on how, you know, what our copies are. So, you know, what the manufacturers actually make in the end of the day, you know, there is very little, you know, uh, 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 sort of leeway for them if, for example, a batch of drug that they produce doesn't meet specification, you know. So mm. for them, you know, the, the financial incentive to try and sell that is much higher than basically complying because the cost of uh, compliance is actually quite low today, right, because you know that you can game that system. You know that you have the ability to sort of figure out when the inspector is going to come over from the US FDA. You know that, you know, how things actually work. You can try and game the system to try and fool those inspectors and get that batch of drug, which normally costs about $100,000 or $200,000, even if it failed, to ship it out because, you know, that's too much of an investment for you and your margins mm. are not all that great. So... Mm. You know, unfortunately, the marketplace isn't, you know, working the way it ought to work when it comes to, you know, a vast majority of our prescriptions. And then you have uh, other prescriptions like, you know, I've used an inhaler for, you know, years and years and years. And I watched it go up and up and up. And it's the same branded one. I know the drug companies have to make money and they spend billions. I totally understand that. But but why does that happen? Why does insulin or my inhaler go up 50x? There is absolutely no reason for that, you know. So in insulin, as you mentioned, there is absolutely no reason for, you know, the cost of insulin, which, you know, the same companies sell for, you know, uh, one-tenth or one-fifteenth of, of what they are charging in the U.S. the moment you step into Europe or into Canada, um, you know, compared to what they sell in the United States. There is absolutely no reason for that to happen. But unfortunately, I guess, you know, our system, the way that our patents work, and our pricing works. A lot of this is something that, that we've wrote into it, right? I mean, we do not allow Medicare to negotiate prices, Part D prescriptions for us. So a lot of this is also the law, right? Companies take advantage of regulations in the way that they're actually set up. Hmm. Yeah, just, I mean, if if a company raises the price of a drug 
higher and higher and higher, I mean, that would push mm-hmm. for a black market in it, or that would push certainly for generics of that drug. So, I mean, they're contributing to the problem. I mean, just, it seems like, I guess, all actors in the system are contributing to the problem, either intentionally or unintentionally. Well, the thing is that the genetics actually become a player into the equation only after the patent expires, right? Until the patent is enforced, you know, genetics obviously cannot make a copy of that drug. And that's where pricing becomes really, really important. The moment you see, you know, the a product become generic, prices definitely drop. But then you also have to be aware of the fact that there has to be a threshold at the, at the bottom, you know, that you can't push it down so far down that the incentive for the manufacturers to still make money and make a good quality product goes out of the window. I mean, if you look at the US FDA's list of drug shortages right now, there are hundreds of drugs which manufacturers, which, you know, there was only one manufacturer and that manufacturer had quality issues in manufacturing. And guess what? We have a problem on our hands because, you know, we don't have um, enough supply of that drug. I mean, Things are changing. You know, there is a uh, company now that, that's been set up for, you know, to bring back manufacturing locally. Um, Civic RX is beginning to ban manufacture vancomycin, which is one of the drugs that is used in hospital settings. And it was on a shortage list for a very, very long time. We have a very long list of injectables, you know, sterile injectables, right, that are on the shortage list. So, you know, this is not something that, that you know, you can try and, and you know, sort of resolve in, in sort of one kind of situation because there are lots and lots of moving parts in this area. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, now, <laughs> after hearing from you and the interview and the book and everything, you get paranoid. And then you look at the, the drugs you are taking. So what, you know, as a consumer, like, what do you do? Can you look up online and yeah. see... I mean, it seems like there's no online, you know, like for, um, if I go buy a supplement on Amazon, for instance, at least if there's a thousand reviews that are positive of it, I'm probably pretty safe in taking it maybe, but I don't, I don't see anything like that for, you know, for drugs and for generic drugs. Like, is there such a thing and what do consumers do? So, you know, no, you're right. You're absolutely correct that, 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 you know, there isn't a consolidated source where somebody can go in and essentially sort of look up. Um, and then this, it's for two different reasons, right? The one biggest issue that we have within our own laws is that our laws do not require pharma companies to disclose where they are manufacturing the drug. So, for example, next time you go get your prescription filled, you look up, you know, the label that, that is, you know, slapped on that, you know, um, bottle that, that, that contains your pills. It has a name of the marketing company, the one that actually holds the marketing authorization in the United States, but it doesn't tell you where it was made. I mean... You remember a few years ago, we had a problem with pet food. You know, we had melamine in, in our dog food and yep, that yep. raised a lot of issues. And basically, the law was changed to say that, look, we need to have the location of manufacture um, when you go to Petco and buy, you know, food for your dog or your cat. Well, guess what? We don't know where the medicine is made. There is no law in our books at this point in time that forces pharma companies to disclose the location of manufacture. So the thing is, even if you wanted to, even if as an aware consumer, you wanted to actually go to the US FDA website and go and look up, you know, the name of the company whose name is printed on your prescription and say, have they had any recalls in the past, right? Have they, has the US FDA issued any warning letters to this company in the past because of all the nonsense that they do? Even if that information is available on the US FDA website, you just do not know where this company is making it. And without knowing that, you really don't, you know, it, 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 you're, not, you're in no better position because the same company may have a manufacturing facility 
in Ireland, in in um, in, in the you know in, in the European Union, or you know in China. Um, and I think that you know the probability that, that you know you the, the facility in Ireland may not have gotten any citations, either recalls or warning letters, but the one in China may have several of those. Without knowing where your product was made, as a consumer, you know you really out of luck. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, I guess the only thing you could do, unfortunately, is other people would be guinea pigs that are currently oh, yes. taking the the medication and. Yeah. Or canaries in the coal mine. All you could do, I guess, is go online and look at no, the, generic X and see if yeah. people have had problems so, with it. I mean, yeah. So one of the things that is happening more and more is that hospitals are actually building these things, right? So I work very closely with Dr. Lieber, who is a senior cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Now, the Cleveland Clinic has developed, you know, what they call a blacklist of, of drugs based upon their own experience of their patients. Their formulary doesn't buy from specific name manufacturers. They just say that we, won't, we don't want to get it from, you know, one, you know, the, the, the companies that they know that they have trouble with. Now, the trouble there is that, you know, because we're such a litigious, litigious society, these hospitals don't make this list public, you know. So they, the doctors know that. Their formulary or pharmacy knows that, uh, that they're not going to buy. I mean, so for example, one of the case studies that, that you know, we've spent a lot of time on is this drug called metoprolol. It is, you know, given to, you know, in, in, it's, it's essentially given to, to, to patients who have some very serious cases of cardiovascular disease. And, you know, we have, you know, many, many clinical anecdotes right now where, you know, the generic version of this drug actually causes your kidneys to malfunction, that you retain more water, and then and then you'll have to put on, be put on dialysis to drain your, your kidneys. I mean, you feel that you bloated. And we know that, that you know, a, this drug manufactured by some specific drug, you know, manufacturers based in India has this problem, but the, the clinic will not make it public because it, at, at the risk of, you know, inviting a lawsuit from these companies, right? So, you know, it's not just that, that, that you know, the information isn't there. It certainly is, but the thing is, you know, we really have to find the right source to be able to find this kind of information, you know, for the medicine that we're taking. But how could, how could the FDA not care or not take action? How, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, like, the, they're human too. Do they of want to uh, live in fear and have family and friends and all that die or suffer horrible complications from this stuff? Like, what's wrong with them? Well, I mean, so there was a hearing, I mean, two weeks ago, I don't know if you saw this, but the House Energy and Commerce Committee subcommittee on FDO oversight, right? They conducted a hearing where the Government Accountability Office, the Director of Health of the GAO, and Janet Woodcock, who is the head of CEDAR in the US FDA, both of them were. As to depose and testify before before the U.S. Congress, and in that you know hearing, I mean the FDA basically has admitted that, that they are not as effective in conducting foreign inspections as they hoped that they would be. I mean the authority to for the FDA to conduct foreign inspections was given as a part of the regulation for DASIA at the time Ranbaxy case broke in 2013. They've had almost six years worth of data. And the the head of um, CEDAR at the FDA basically admitted in that hearing that their the model of inspecting foreign facilities and this isn't working all that well. So I think you know there, there, you know things of this nature will will bring some pressure on. I think one of the things that I try to do is is try and educate my congress uh, my congressperson, you know, my senator, and basically you know have them ask questions, you know, when an opportunity like this presents itself to get the FDA to take more proactive action. I mean, it's been five years of them doing, you know, this, right? If they themselves are admitting that, you know, what they're doing isn't working, well, something's got to give, right? 
It hasn't given so far. I mean, it's just, it, it, yeah, like, you know, how could, how could a company, by the way, so I guess if a hospital says we're not going to use company X's drugs because we've had problems with them, why would a company even have standing to sue them? What are they suing them for? Well, I mean, so, you know, defamation? No, so majority of these issues, right, even when the FDA has a problem, let's, let's say, for example, this has happened in the past. When the FDA goes out there to India and China and inspects, right, and they find out that the company was committing fraud, either in their documents or in the way that they're manufacturing the drug or in the way that they, they are using, you know, sort of, for example, excipients and raw materials. I mean, simple, I mean, I can give you very simple examples, right? For example, you, you know, in, in the manufacturing, manufacturing process, you would need to use, you know, distilled water, right? And if you, if you don't do that, you have microbial contamination in the drug that you produce. And if the FDA goes out there and finds out that, they, you know, the water that they're using to produce a drug is not as, as clean, you know, as, as specifications demand, that obviously puts public health at risk. And, and the FDA basically says, okay, you cannot, you know, then sort of, you know, they give them a warning and basically saying that, you know, you cannot do this, fix it, right? And so that's the extent to what the FDA can do in a foreign Spain and then foreign in a country, right? If the facility was here in the United States, the FDA has the ability to, for example, search and seizure, uh, you know, uh, a capability where they can essentially sort of seize the entire stock of what this company is actually making. Well, they can't do that. They don't have jurisdiction on a foreign land, um, you know, when, when, when you're inspecting, you know, a facility located in India. Um, FDA has the ability to debar people who are registered practitioners in the United States. Well, they don't have the same jurisdiction in India, right? Or in China, for example, if you find that, you know, a particular scientist or somebody in the manage, management there is fudging data to release a substantive product to the United States, what are they going to do? There are some systemic issues that we have to worry about because, you know, our drug supply has become global right now. We don't manufacture a vast majority of what we consume in this country as far as medicines are concerned, but the law is not caught up to it. Well, to make it even worse, I think you mentioned or the book mentioned that active ingredients could be changed and the components of a drug Maybe made yeah. in multiple factories and then combined, so it'd be impossible to figure it yeah. out. Yeah, of course. Well, again, what can people do? What's your recommendation as an average consumer? Well, I mean, at this point, there are two things that you can do. One is to try and educate yourself. Thankfully, the FDA has a lot of this information available on their website through the FDA dashboard. You can just go to the usfda.gov and look for the inspections dashboard. You know, list all kinds of information about recalls, about warning letters, about import alerts. Number one. Number two is, you know, educate yourself and go talk to your doctor. If you don't feel well after taking your medicine, right, bring it to your doctor's attention that this is a real issue. Don't kind of dismiss it saying that it's all in your head, right? Third is to write to your local, you know, congressman, congresswoman, and, and, and senator and basically say that this is what is happening. I mean, I live in Florida. We have a very large elderly population, and this is what I do. I mean, I spend a lot of my time trying to educate, you know, my representatives so that they understand that this is a real issue among their constituents. I think the more, you know, we, we try and reach out to our, our representatives, they at least begin to ask questions, and that's how the law changes, right? I mean, one of the things that I keep lobbying, you know, to, to all my, my congressional representatives is just to make one simple change to make sure that these companies disclose the location of manufacture in the lab, on the label of my prescription drugs. Just make that one change to the current regulations, right? Mm. So that it empowers me as a consumer to make better informed choice. Right, right. Well, even today, I mean, I read in the book that, you know, you even went to like the Indian government and 
you just got yeah. blowback from everybody. So is it still the case? Have things magically changed or is in general, is it just still deny well, and, and you know, nothing's going yeah. anywhere? Well, I mean, look, you know, these things don't happen overnight, right? It takes a long time to try and make, affect any change because the amount of money involved in this, whether it's here in the United States or whether it's in India, where you know I'm also very active in terms of trying to change the regulation, it's the same issue there because the industry is really powerful and there's no incentive for them to change anything. So to try and affect you know change in their regulations, which I think is you know it's going to be extremely important if our drug supply improves here, you know. That, that India actually begins to enforce its own regulations more stringently, right? I mean, think about it. Like, for example, when RFAA, right, it doesn't go to India and inspect Air India aircraft when it takes off from Delhi to land in Newark, right? It relies on its counterpart in India to ensure that the, the equipment is safe, the pilots are well rested, and they comply mm-hmm. with our regulations, right? That's the way the model actually works. Because you know, if the FAA basically said, oh, well, we're going to open up offices in every country, wherever, you know, from where a flight originates to land, you know, within in, in, in JFK or San Francisco or Los Angeles, we just wouldn't be able to do that. We really need to hold, you know, these foreign well, regulators to account. They still can do something. You know, it seems like they just say, oh, well, they're in another country, there's nothing we can do. You know, I mean, <laughs> when, yeah, when well, a drug enters this country, why can't you test? One yeah. percent so, so or one tenth of a percent of each lot, or one one hundredth of a percent, something. I don't know. Yeah. So, so that may very well be that. That's the next step. You know, if the regulations change, that may be the way that the things go. In fact, you know, because the FDA doesn't do that, there are pharmacies like Valisure, based in Connecticut, that are beginning to do that. They're basically testing every lot of the drug that you know you buy through them for the same money that you would go to a CVS or a Walmart or a Walgreens. Uh, to, to get your prescription filled. One of the things that they do is that once the drug is in, comes into the country, they test every lot of that drug before it's released to their consumers. So, I mean, either well, the that's government a lot. does it. it, it I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about like a percentage yeah. of testing. How do they do that? How does Valisure do that and still make money? So, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, the vast majority of these things are essentially sort of the pricing of these, as I mentioned to you, the vast majority of the money is in the middlemen, the pharmacy benefit managers. Now, if mm. you eliminate the pharmacy benefit managers, if, if, if a third-party pharmacy is able to directly procure through a large contract from the manufacturers and then do the testing, they can still meet the current copay standards. Um, DBMs are traditionally a black hole. You know, There is very little in the way of transparency in the way that they work. And the, and the rebate model and the average wholesale price that, that they use to negotiate on both ends, um, you know, the retail end and also the manufacturing end, it's a, it's a complete, you know, sort of opaque system, you know, for, 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 for us. And that's partly the reason why our medicine costs are so high. So these companies but, essentially, like Valashore, they're trying to essentially, you know, sort of work around that to say that you can still make money by testing this, you know, every lot of the drug and supplying them right. to the patients. I mean, they don't do it for every drug. Obviously, there's a, you know, the portfolio is growing, but, you know, they do it for a certain, you know, like, for example, widely used drugs like cardiovascular drugs or diabetes drugs. Mm. Well, what would happen if uh, a senator tried to propose a bill to totally reform the prescription drug portion, you know, or the, at least the, the pharmacy ben- benefit managers, they try to, I mean, do you yeah. think they would just get blown to pieces or do you think that, like, what would happen? 
you, I mean, how long, how many election cycles have we been you know, hearing about cost of prescription drugs? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not an easy, I mean, look, you know, I mean, on the Hill, uh, Capitol Hill, the two biggest lobbies are the gun lobby and the pharma lobby. Spend a lot of money, you know, lobbying, you know, the lawmakers to try and preserve the status quo, which essentially sort of, you know, gives them the, the incentive to try and make make more money. Yeah. Hmm. I was, was going to go back to consumers for a minute. Um, we kind of talked about this very briefly, but is the FDA, so if you're relying on looking at FDA inspection reports, I mean, what else can you do? There's got to be something else. I mean, I guess one thing is try to avoid the, try to afford the branded version if you can. I don't know if that keeps you safe. Like what, no, what's no, been the experience no, of branded no, versions? I, I don't know. So even, the, even branded companies, I think what happens is that they use the same manufacturing facilities overseas. But what happens is that with the brand companies, because you know they have a lot to lose, right? You know, in terms of their reputation, they do their own testing before they do release it to, to the market, and that is the difference between you know what happens you know, with with many many branded drugs, because they also outsource manufacturing to the same same manufacturing facilities that that they do this for for uh, generic drugs. But I'm not saying that we should only be using branded drugs. That is not a solution. We don't yeah. want to make it more expensive for, for patients. That is not the issue at all. I think what we need to do is fix the problem that we have, right? And we know we can fix this. This is not, you know, something that, that is an unfixable problem. It just will take, you know, a lot of political will to, to fix it and enough people to stand up and say that there is a problem. As you said, the biggest thing that we have right now is our own healthcare providers, right? They basically don't believe that, that there is a problem. A patient goes to the doctor and says, look, doctor, my, my drug is not working. Nine out of 10 times they are told, you know, guess what? It's all in your head. Or you know, let me right. write a different prescription for you, right? A different generic prescription for you without going into the root cause of why is it that that particular prescription is not working because doctors and nurses don't have the time to investigate. Yeah. Right? So part of this is also building consensus and then trying to make this as a viable issue within our lawmakers, right? So they pay attention to this. Well, what's even worse in the book, they talked about uh, if you're not in the U.S., in some of these countries in Africa or other countries, third world countries, they get even worse stuff. They just yeah. get garbage. And yeah. there's no point in even giving them drugs because there's nothing, you know? Like, that's awful. Unfortunately, that is true. I think, you know, these same companies that manufacture for global markets, they what they do is take a lot more leeway when they make drugs for, you know, markets that they know the regulatory oversight is not all that great, right? For example, if you go into any other world countries, their regulators aren't as equipped as the US FDA is or the European Union EMA is or the British MHRA is because they know that, you know, they are not as capable. They don't have the same resources that some of these regulators have. They, you know, essentially, you know, the, the, for them, it's a cost of doing business, you know, you, you to try and beat the system as, as long as you possibly can. And I've seen that firsthand yeah. in many, many occasions. Well, for the other countries, if they're going to make garbage, why don't they just make sugar pills? Like, why wouldn't the company just literally just encapsulate like nothing, you know, harmless nothing and just call it whatever drug they want, label it however they want. And then they'd further, even further maximize the money they make. Why not? Why not do that? Well, so, so, you know, there are two issues, right? So this issue has been studied, you know, quite well uh, in the area of malaria. See, malaria is a tropical disease. You know, we don't deal with it in this country, you know, but it's endemic in, in tropical, the tropical, tropical countries. And 
there is a lot of literature in terms of what really happens in you know with, with malaria. Uh, we have to understand, you know, when it's outside, when you're talking about things outside of the U.S., right? There are two different buckets that you have to worry about. One is counterfeit; the other is substandard. Um, so, for example, so Novartis makes this drug called Coartum, Coartum, which is a Novartis's drug. It's actually a very good drug to treat malaria, but it's expensive, right? And what happens, you know, in, in, in places where malaria is endemic, which is like Southeast Asia, India, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, or in Central Africa, is that, you know, this drug is counterfeited, basically, meaning that, you know, you make your packaging, you make your, um, you know, look like Novartis' stuff. So that is counterfeiting stuff, right? Jesus. And then, you know, you have medicine that, you know, for example, that comes from an Indian company that makes, you know, artemisinin, which is another drug that treats malaria. There, you know, it, it, nobody knows that company as well as perhaps Novartis' name is, right? For, so, for example, you can, you don't really have to make, a, you know, all the effort to even make it pretty, make it look like Novartis' drug, you know, make sure that the pill looks like, for example, I mean, most pills have some kind of branding on it, right? It has some letters right. on it. It's got you know some demarcation to make it look like you know it's a genuine thing. They don't even make that attempt anymore. So you know outside of the United States, the, the problem becomes a lot more complicated because you not only have counterfeit drugs but you have substandard drugs as well. At the end of the day, it's a patient that gets essentially affected because yeah. neither of these ones, substandard or, or counterfeits, actually deliver therapeutic value, right? So. WHO does a lot of work in this area. You know, McDeeds and his team, you know, work a lot in the counterfeits area. But this is a global problem. I mean, you don't have that issue in this country because, you know, our regulator is very good. I mean, to the extent I'm qualifying that by good by saying that, that they are very stringent in what they do. But, you know, in countries where you don't have good regulatory agencies, you know, this is a much yeah. bigger problem. Yeah. Well, I have, I have an idea. What if... Um... You know, a company's drug is about to go off patent, but they made a law yeah. where the company can still earn, you know, a small licensing fee, but they would yeah. disclose exactly yeah. how they make it and everything. And that would yeah. be the required method of making it for all the generics. That yeah. way, the company would still yeah. make some money and the yeah. generics wouldn't have to try to figure yeah. it out blindly how to make this thing. Yeah. And that may improve generics, yeah. you know? Yeah, so th that exists today. You know, those are called authorized genetics, right? So authorized genetic is essentially a genetic company that works for the innovator company who the innovator company teaches its recipe for making the drug. But the point here is that what happens is that, you know, even if you are an a, a authorized genetic that sells your product at a deep discount to what the innovator does, after six months of the patent expiry, the market basically says that you can have as many as 10 or 12 different companies come in. Now, if you have 10 or 12 different companies who are standard generic companies and they drive the price down to such a level that the authorized generic becomes then more expensive, right? So, you know, the market dynamics here are also a problem in the way that the Hatch-Waxman Act works, which was enacted in 1980s essentially to bring in competition. I mean, at that point in time, the idea was good, but now we have got 30 years worth of, of, of economic and competition-related data that tells us, you know, how this thing actually should work or does work, or is this not really working? Um, there is actually a good sort of uh, economic argument for what you're suggesting. But again, you know, it has to be thought through from a policy point of view and how do you build that, you know, into regulatory framework. So what are your really? thoughts uh, going forward at this time? Do you think there's going to be any I, major improvements yeah. or changes? Like, what, what do you honestly see as happening? 
So, so I mean, I think that, as I said to you, I think that the most important thing for us is to bring this issue front and center, right? So, for example, one of the things that the FDA has done is it has looked at its criteria for approving genetics for what are called narrow therapeutic index drugs, right? These are drugs that, you know, even a small change in the active ingredient causes a lot of trouble. Anything to do with, you know, for example, central nervous system, so anything to do with mental health, anything to do with, you know, um, epilepsy, Alzheimer's, um, you know, mood disorders, any of these drugs, there, there has to be a much tighter control on how we, you know, what what kind of standards that the companies have to, generic companies have to meet in order to get the product approved. So in the last couple of years, the FDA has actually tightened this regulation on, on that aspect of it, which is a good thing. Second thing, what you know is happening is that this attention that the U.S. The Congress is bringing to ask to to ask the FDA about these questions is actually a good thing because once the, the most recent GAO report comes out, something will have to change within the FDA. Right? They cannot plead that oh, we'll continue doing the same thing over and over again and still expect you know not to be as effective as possible. Right? There are hearings that are actually you know happening in the U.S. Congress right now. Perhaps there's going to be more you know in February. But the hope is that, that that will those hearings will lead to even minor changes in the law, things like disclosure of, of where you know our product our, our prescription drugs are made to on the label. Those little things will go a, a long way in sort of bringing transparency into this particular process. The third thing is this, is you know this whole notion about negotiating prices, like the role of PVMs, that will have to be studied you know into greater detail. I mean. We don't allow Medicare to negotiate, which I think is silly because every other country in the world does, right? So we have yeah. to think about, you know, those things as well. And these are all, you know, moving parts, right? It's not like one part, if you address it, it doesn't sort of affect the, the rest of it. If you just touch one aspect of it, everything moves, right? So you'll have to kind of, you know, do it in a way that, that you know, preserves what we have, doesn't cause too much disruption in our drug supply and still continues to provide good quality medicines you know, within, within our patient population. Fair enough. Well, so Dinesh, I mean, I'm really glad you're, you're here. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I mean, it's so important. It just affects everybody. Um, what's the, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure you don't want to be besieged by people contacting you, but I mean, what's your, <laughs> like, what's your parting advice? How can people learn more? You know, should they read I, Bottle of Lies? I, like, what's your recommendation? I, for me? I, my recommendation is if you, if you can borrow a copy of Bottle of Lies from the library, please read it. Because I think that you know it describes you know the, the reality behind our prescription drugs. Um, you know, I if, if you if you like, I have a website that I write. You know, uh, when issues that are that I believe are kind of important for me to sort of articulate, it is dineshthecore.com. You can just go there and and, and read what I write. Um, and, and Again, the website name. You know, uh, it's my first name, last name. dot com. Dineshthecore.com. and um, and then, you know, um, I always respond to email whenever I get email. My email is listed publicly on that website. And, 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 and I've always sort of tried to do my best in responding to the questions that I get. Well, Dinesh, uh, as they say, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Man, I appreciate, I appreciate you being <laughs> hey, here. It's very kind of you. <laughs> I know you've had, a, you've had a hard time and you've had criticism from everywhere and it's never stopped and all that. And, uh, you know, I just want someone to tell you at least, you know, whatever it's worth, like, you know, you're doing good things and, you're doing hard things, but uh, thank goodness it's people like you. So I appreciate it. That's very kind. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.